Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Israeli economist Aichak Calderon Adizis once said, Some people have something to say. Some people have to say something. Avoid the second group. Now, starting a business and building a company is, is challenging, it's exciting, and, and for me, it's been one of the more spiritual experiences I've had in my life between the clients I've met who've trusted me with their family wealth, um, but not only that, what they've brought to my life and how they've influenced me to be a better person, more involved in my community, be a better husband and father. I cannot deny the hand of God in my work in Capital Investment Advisors, and that also speaks to the people I serve with. Who um, I've worked with a lot of good people over the years, but the team that um, I have now is, is some of the best people I could ever hope to collaborate with on a daily basis. But there's a lot that can go wrong <laughs> starting a business, just taking an idea from our mind and then successfully turning it into something that not only can generate revenue, which I think is just kind of a short-sighted goal, but something can actually make a difference in people's lives. There's a lot that can go wrong. I mean, I've had, I started off with a partner when I first left the bank back in the mid-90s, and that lasted a year, and then we just weren't on the same page, and then I got involved in another kind of a partnership situation a few years later, and those were situations that just didn't work out that great, but you learn and you move on. And that's the thing with business is that you can perhaps get to a point where you feel like everything is exactly where you want it, but it's very difficult. There's still work to do to keep it there. We never get to rest on our laurels as business owners, because if we get too complacent, we become like a lot of organizations are today, and some that I've been involved with that have a population of people that are just content to keep doing things the same way over and over again, that, well, we've always done it this way, and eventually just lose sight of really why they're there. There's a scripture, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. And to me, at least in the business world, it's important to constantly reevaluate and reassess and make sure that we're fresh, I guess is the word. We're hitting the mark, that we're not just relying on the same thing day after day, week after week, year after year. And so it's a process. Today's guest is with a company that specializes in change management, Adesis International. His name is Sunil Dovedi. He oversees the professional practices of the Adesis Institute in the Americas in India with special emphasis on program delivery quality. He's a certified Adesis principal associate and delivers key modules of the Adesis program for organizational transformation. Sunil, he has worked in a lot of fast-paced, innovative environments with high-performance teams. He has a continuing focus on driving the overall organization and key business units towards superior levels of achievement. And um, he brings to the Adesis organization an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, and he earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology in Varanasa. He has a lot of years of experience working with entrepreneurs across a variety of different business organizations and nonprofits. He recently relocated to Colorado uh, after having spent a number of years down in Monterey, Mexico, and he's married with three children. So it's my pleasure to welcome today Sunil Dovedi, who's coming to us today from Morrison, Colorado. Sunil, thanks for joining me today on Upthinking Finance. Great to be here, Emerson. Looking forward to what we can uh, see unfolding. All right. So I guess the best place to start would be 
to explain um, what a Jesus is to the listeners, I know enough to be dangerous, and you're the expert, so. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I'm still a novice, even though I've been at it for two decades. So just a bit of history. I used to be in the software field for the longest of time, 20 odd years. And then uh, through a series of circumstances, ran into this gentleman, Dr. Adesis, who's based in Santa Barbara, and, and we've lived in Santa Barbara for a long time. And he showed up in our lives, and he's uh, one of these people in, on earth that you, know, that you come across once in a while, and if you do, it's, it's a privilege. He's definitely a gifted individual, and what is his contribution to the world, I think, is how to simplify the process of management. And he's taken typical management thinking. You can, you know, people go get their MBAs and, and all that good stuff. But how do you simplify it so that even the person who doesn't have an educational degree can get it? And I think that's his uh, his gift: is how do you take common sense principles and apply them to the management uh, game? And I ran across him in 1997, and we, as a company, applied the principles, and I was blown away because I said this is too good to keep a secret. And then in 1999, I joined him on a crusade. So in a, in a sense, we are sort of missionaries trying to transform how management is practiced and taught. Because very often, the way people think of management is it's, it's, it's pretty uh, 19th century. And, and you know, the 21st century, you need some other techniques. And hopefully, we'll touch upon that as we go along. But I give uh, a tremendous amount of credit to uh, Dr. Rezus. He's been a guide, a, a teacher, and a mentor, and it's been a wonderful journey for the last 20 odd years. Well, as you know, you met my wife, Darcy, who's been a guest on this uh, on this podcast, and that's where I got connected to you ultimately, but to Adesis and the thinking. And I went to um, Breakthrough to Prime, gosh, probably seven, eight years ago, I think now, up at the location there in Cupertino. And no, I found it, as you said, there's a logic to it and a depth to it. I'm self-employed now, and I can tell you, I just listened to you explain about management. I mean, all I was ever exposed to in life was command and control and intimidation, <laughs> you know? So either you're going to cower and accept it, or you're going to branch off and do your own thing and hopefully not treat people that way. So um, <laughs> anyhow, the medieval style, I guess you might say. So exactly. would it be good? Because I, th I think the foundation of this is that that life cycle. And I and I would like to share that with the listeners. For those of you who are not watching on YouTube, I'd encourage you to, to take time to see it because this is really kind of the foundation. Is that a fair way to put it for this management thinking in terms of where how you have to adjust and adapt? Yeah, I think that's one of the core uh, principles. And I think it'll be, it's, it's as good a place to start, Emerson, as any. Basically, what is a life cycle? I think all of us experience life cycles all the time. You know, things are born, they grow, they age, and they die. And what Dr. Jesus, along the way in his in his travels, discovered that uh, very similar to the human life cycle, you know, you you have a baby, infant, toddler, or the, the terrible twos, as we call it, and then the teenager years. Then you get into the adult stage, middle age, and eventually, you know, you sit back and start reaping the benefits of what you've actually built. And then you get to some comfortable location. And when you get old, you sometimes move back with the kids. And eventually we all die. So again, nothing dramatic about this. But this is also true of any other systems like stars or trees and animals. They all typically follow a life cycle. And so do any organization. And if you go to the next slide, Emerson, there's the thing called the corporate life cycle, which is the Adesis corporate life cycle. And here you go through these different 10 stages. It starts with the courtship of an, you have an idea and you have a gleam in your eye and say, oh, I can go change the world with this particular thing that I have. And then you 
the organization is born, it goes through a, a birth stage, getting into infancy, and you go from dreaming to to doing. And it's it's like when a kid gets born in the family, you know, you the sleepless nights, and there's all kinds of things that are needed. And for the baby to really have a successful infancy, it, it needs two things: it needs love and milk. In the case of an organization, the love is the commitment of the founding of members. And milk is cash flow. So if, uh, those are the things that keep it alive. And then as it goes on, you know, the, it, again, and, and long hours. Typically, when you look at infant organizations, they are working long hours. And I mean, 20 hours a day is, is pretty, pretty typical. And people say, can you get a life? And the life is taking care of the baby. And then eventually the customers, if it all goes well, the customers start coming back, cash flow gets positive, and then you get into this go-go phase where, you know, overnight almost you go, you go from this rags to riches kind of a state. And it's a very heady times because people told you, oh, it's tough and you, and you can't make it. And eventually you make it. And this go-go is, you know, the, the market is accepting what you have, the money is flowing in. But the challenge with Gogo is that uh, life is so good that you don't have the necessary controls in place. So you don't really know whether you're making money, losing money. But and, and very, very often when we talk to Gogo organizations, we ask them, how are you doing? And they always talk, we sold so much, we have so much market share. They always think in terms of the top line or the revenue rather than mm. looking at the whole system. And eventually <clears throat> what happens is the, uh, the lack of controls catch up. And then um, the organization is then it transitions into the stage of adolescence where you you need to start looking at uh, making sure less is more because in gogo everything is you chase everything it's like a two-year-old they put their finger in, in any kind of thing that's interesting and the same thing is true for a gogo organization and adolescence you know certain controls come into place and you you start taking away the customers that uh, don't really give you as much profitability or you have to prune the organization. It's like a tree has to be pruned. It, you know, it's a, it's, a bush. it's a bush that grows in different directions and the energy has to be refocused. And that's what happens in adolescence. And then you have prime. Prime is a place where uh, you know, you're in a, in a really good place where there's a balance between flexibility and control, where you're able to make changes and also control the organization. And post-prime, there's this gray zone, as you can see in the slide, it's, it, fall, it, it ends up in this zone of, it's what, it's, it gets to the fall where all the excitement, so you have this rocket ship that's going and the momentum of the rocket ship takes you to the top and then eventually if you don't sustain that energy that took you to the place called prime, it eventually starts to fall and the organization is still very strong, it's got you know healthy cash flow, customers are still coming and buying what you have. But the excitement is, is starting to wane. And eventually, as you move to the right side of the curve or the red part of the curve, you move more from adding value to the marketplace to protecting the gains. And that's typically what happens in aristocracy. You start accumulating wealth and financial wealth, and people come and say, oh, I've got so much cash in the bank. And well, the question is, is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And many, many times in aristocracy, the typical thing you hear is, oh, we beat our budgets. Well, in, in, our, in our vernacular, it's, uh, that is not such a good thing. Beating budgets doesn't mean uh, you're doing well because you just set your budgets too low. There's no stretching. So the organization starts to get comfortable. And eventually, that catches up with you. And then you're not, you're not as relevant anymore in the, in the marketplace. And then it starts, you know, the uh, people start to turn upon each other. And there's an age of recrimination. There's infighting and who caused the problem. But the problem was caused just past the prime when you stopped having that energy to fuel the rocket ship. And then eventually there's a, another discontinuity, this 
zigzag that you can see in the curve is when you you know you, you put it on artificial life support and it becomes a bureaucracy because for, for, for whatever reason you need, you need to sustain the business you know maybe it's too big to fail or whatever and then eventually you pull the plug when it's you know when all is said and done and the plug is pulled and the organization dies so those are the 10 stages in summary of the life cycle and there are some early exits as you can see there's the, from courtship you can go to an affair if if it doesn't if the risk is not undertaken if something doesn't get born then it was just an idea or you have infant mortality which is from infancy it's these are the shortcuts to the aging or dying side and from gogo there's a thing called the founders of family trap where the organization doesn't really get institutionalized and managed by a different set of people and the founder or the family controls it and then when the founder or the family passes on the organization also dies in adolescence there's typically a fight that takes place you know between because um, there's a time where the outgoing side and the inside as a you want more controls because you don't have them till the go go stage and trying to insert those controls as well as staying relevant to the market that tension causes challenges to come in and this can be seen in many many organizations and i think the most prominent ones you already know so in a classic example is apple you know steve jobs and wozniak started that you know they went through the courtship infancy and then steve jobs took it to the go go stage and then he hired uh, Scully from Pepsi you know I think and this his famous quote was do you want to uh, change the world or you or you want to still sell sugar water so so he hired Scully but then there was a fight between Scully and Jobs and Scully you know he went and created an alliance with the board because Jobs Jobs was this so called unguided missile according to Scully and he was coming up with new ideas and Scully was trying to put in the controls and that created a fight which caused the separation and then Jobs was kicked out if you can remember But Jobs went and started up other uh, other things like Next and Pixar, and then came back to Apple. But as Scully took over, if you follow the life cycle, there was a aging sense. There was no the excitement was not there. They started making more profits, but the excitement was not there, and they went into premature aging. And then Jobs got back, and then we see Apple reignited Apple to give it the life it has today. So that's an example of how this life cycle sort of works. But you can see this happening in how do we say in many many um, contexts so that's a bit of the life cycle emerson i don't know if i spoke too long but there we are no i love this because i've had a chance to implement this in different ways and and there's a number of questions because as you said applies to business it's kind of um i don't know what the word is organic but even in relationships and you see these i've experienced this in working with clients i you know in church um and i was thinking i'm reading a book called the death or the myth of capitalism and one of the things it talks about is it's kind of a side thing but these big companies have decided they'd rather not compete with each other they'd rather just become oligopolies and they coexist but one of the interesting things it was just what you said was that they spend billion or millions and billions of dollars i guess on research and development but as a percentage of their revenues it's like nothing and so there's no innovation there's no change and and i remember learning at the top the fall begins when you lose vision and so where the profit becomes the the means to the end rather than as you said earlier changing the world so one question i'd like to ask is how do you take an organization that's already surpassed the prime and then pull it back because it's almost like a momentum that gets set in when you going through all these processes which are all pitfalls i mean it's like this thing could blow up really at any time for a bunch of reasons 
And then you get this company to that sweet spot, but then you get to that top where all of a sudden, I always equate it to resting on your laurels, just standing pat. You know, this is the way we've always done it. All that stuff that just makes me want to heave. I, I, anybody that throws that, well, this is the way it's always been done. I, you know, I mean, that's like a red flag to just turn and run. But how do you pull it back? So the first benefit really of this life cycle, I keep asking people when I show this, what is the purpose? You know, who cares if this thing exists or doesn't exist? And this is a very important diagnostic tool, Emerson. Knowing where you are is very important. And the other piece is the leadership style. Or the, Let's go back to families and parenting. The way you parent for an infant and the way you parent for a two-year-old, which is the go-go, and the way you parent for an adolescent is totally different. And knowing how to shift your leadership and parenting style is, is critical. So knowing where you are, at any point in time, there are always three options. So let's say you find yourself in aristocracy. So there's option one is you can try and claw your way back to prime. So that, that is a path. Option two is let it just continue the normal flow and go downwards to death. Or you can actually trigger a new life cycle. So imagine another life cycle being born from aristocracy where you start a new life from, from that stage. Because many times aristocracy organizations have the capability to, to, to start it, but they have to almost jettison their, their beliefs and other pieces of the puzzle. And a good example of this could be, you can also, by the way, apply this to countries. And I and originally I'm from India. And when I left India in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, India was clearly in, uh, in the recrimination bureaucracy zone. But if you look at India right now, India is definitely a more in a go-go stage where, where they've, you know, if you look at all the software, it's number one in the software development. So they, there were certain things they did which allowed it to start up a new life cycle. So there's a vibrancy around it. So knowing where you are, you can actually uh, figure out the, uh, the three options that you always have. So in GoGo, you have, if you're, suppose you're in GoGo, you have three options too. You can claw your way up to prime, or you can go into the founder's trap, or you can slide back to infancy. This is a dynamic thing. It's not a question of once you get to a certain stage, you'll be there. Because the biggest problem or the biggest challenge in prime is to first get into prime, and the, the bigger challenge is staying in prime, because you will... You, know, you you will uh, shift. And the way we look at this is not how big the organization is in terms of its size or chronological age. It's how is the organization behaving? How Because we've seen organizations that are 50 years, 50 years chronologically, but they're still in a go-go stage. In fact, we had one client, which was $10 billion in revenue, and they were still in go-go. They were acting like two-year-olds. So, it was, so it's not your revenue or your size or age. And there's uh, organizations that are five years old, but they are aging and they, you can feel them, you know, heavy. So the trick is to understand where you are. And then once you're there, then get a consciousness, say, okay, if this is where I am, I can move to the next stage. And the other beauty of this, uh, Emerson, is that at every stage, you're going to have issues. I mean, problems are a part of life. But the trick is, which problems should you address? And a simple uh, way of Understanding this is if I tell you my child wakes up at two in the morning, cries and wets its bed, I mean, is that a problem I, I need to solve? And the only answer to that is, uh, is another question, which is how old is the child? If the child's a six-month infant, leave it alone. But if it's a 29-year-old son of mine, I better, <laughs> I better solve that problem. So it's yeah. independent. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because here's a thought, and this is kind of related to my firm. And there's, I guess 
kind of two different directions. I, maybe I'm simplifying it. People go when you run a financial planning firm. One is, and a lot of guys like to go big and, and have you know a lot of reps and have these big organizations with all these different people and huge revenues. And then there's kind of which the path I've chosen, which is a smaller one. There's four of us in the office. We manage a, you know, a, a more modest amount of money because the priorities are more to be able to have more face time with clients. A lot of the things that seem to be getting lost in business today, particularly as organizations get bigger, the principals lose touch with the, the, the clients and even with staff. And my point is, is I guess I've always viewed more people as more variables as more problems. <laughs> you know, I'm wondering if, if you were to summarize to your point, what problems do you spend more time solving in this process? I'd submit, I think it's personalities and people and resistance to change and but maybe there's something else. So I'd be curious on your insight on that. Absolutely. I think there's definitely, as you add complexity with number of people, there's so many more uh, hearts, heads, hands that are that are flying around. And each of them have their own families and their own interests. And, and as people evolve and grow, and because our priorities are even our, uh, you know, what is important in life changes too as, as individuals. So even individuals, we have a life cycle. But I was very moved by this book, which I read in the when I was in college, it was very idealistic, and it's uh, it's by by uh, Schumacher, and it's uh, "Small is Beautiful" was the title, and he's he's done uh, he's written three books, you know, "Good Work," "Small is Beautiful," and then "A Guide for the Perplexed," and he's 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 an economist, but basically his, his subtitle of his "Small is Beautiful" book is "Economics as if People Matter." So how do you right size? And there's I think some. Even though he wrote it in the 70s, I think it's so relevant even for today's context. And many times when we work with organizations, the key thing we try and do is to create a structure or an ecosystem where exactly you simulate this, this smallness because at the end of the day, your heart has to engage. If you don't engage the heart, and if you just make it a mind thing or a mechanical thing, you're going to become irrelevant and it's going to calcify. And even large organizations, if you think of an organization like Toyota, for instance, and they have these great systems where, and then the Japanese way of, uh, you know, any worker can stop the line and, and there was a value system in place, but even that over time gets calcified. So I don't know if you remember there was, uh, we had the experience because there was this uh, incident about sudden acceleration in Toyota cars. Now, Toyota cars are known to be safe and well-manufactured, but there was this thing where and even though they knew internally that this defect existed, they didn't. They couldn't block and stop the line. So even with all their systems, it, it started to calcify, and people died. And then there was an acceleration thing. Now they still don't know exactly what the cause and effect was, but there was some thing which caused sudden acceleration where you where you lost control over your car. And even with the best system and the best, and then. What typically happens is we get sidetracked by the profit motive sometimes and say, oh, this is going to cost too much or, or, or we tend to ignore things and we hope for the best. But that's, that's part of life, I think, too. And we, we go through these, um, these waves. But I think what you've chosen to do is, is really have a team that's, uh, that's integrated, that, you know, that works together and uh, feels for each other. So, and, and then you can add good value to your clients as opposed to, uh, and you don't have to have the best products or the best offerings, but I think at the end of the day, most people are looking for a certain, you know, a, a certain relationship, I think. And that's, uh, that definitely is coming in, in, in no uncertain terms, despite what's happening in the U.S. right now. I feel there's a, there's a shift happening where we are going to get back to some of the basics. Emerson. You're right. And it's funny because we've, in our office, had conversations about, it's not just work. 
it's people, as you said. And how do we best, I guess, have a thoroughness or a consistency in everything? You know, we redid our branding. You know, one of my clients who's a graphic design person pointed out that our, our logo didn't really align with our personalities, you know, the, the energy that we have in our office. And once we did that, it also then started to broaden out into, you know, we're a small, you know, it, it was like an awareness, I guess, of who we are, who our clients are, what the expectation is, how we want to represent ourselves. A lot of things I never really thought about consciously. It was always kind of there. But what's interesting is, to your point, is we're meeting people now. Um, clients are coming to us. And it's not like I'm advertising this new image or whatever, but people are being drawn to the fact that we are shunning doing business with certain types of companies, that we are consistent. You know, we're small. We're trying to deal with firms that maybe are more niche like we are. But that's what's happened. It's just like kind of what is that thing from that movie? You know, if you build it, they will come. And that's sort of kind of, you know, field of dreams. That's kind of what's happening. And so it's been very reaffirming, I guess, is, is maybe the point. And so I look at the chart and I think, well, where are we? And I, I feel in many ways we're, we're kind of as big as we want, but the dynamics of our client base is changing somewhat. But our attitude is, so I don't know, I like to think we're at a prime spot. I don't think we'll ever get too big. My concern is always just getting stale as a, you know, as an advisor. I never want to be that guy who's sitting at my desk, you know, when I'm 80 doing the same old thing. And, and thankfully, in the last two years, a lot of things have, my outlook on things has shifted I've opened my mind to things that five years ago or even three years ago, I wouldn't even have made time for people. And as a result, the, there's an energy that's been built back into the, to what we're doing, which is obviously benefiting clients, but it, it's infiltrated the firm. Does that make sense how I'm explaining that? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the key, uh, it goes back to, if you go back to the original Olympics, where the, the Greeks, they know it's, it's, it's about the inside. If the inside is strong and vibrant, it doesn't make a difference what the outside is. If, the, if you're integrated in the inside and if you if you love what you do, that's going to exude it. And, and it, it's not a matter of size. It's about what quality. And I think that's what everybody is, is I think, yearning for. We might have gotten lost with all this, you know, globalization and, you know, supply chains and efficiencies and let's get the cheapest cost. But people are, are willing to, no, 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 I shouldn't say pay more, but I think they, they pay for value. It's, and, and what do you value? You don't, and, and plus, if you look at the <clears throat> the total cost of doing business, we sometimes ignore the, the true costs. Uh, you know, for example, cost of, because uh, we don't add in the costs of the uh, how much our pollution costs or how much we are, uh, there are certain things that we're taking for granted and we're using certain assets, which we assume are free, but they're not really free. And I think the consciousness is shifting, especially in the younger generations, Emerson, that they are not going to let you get away with uh, just uh, so-called cheaper price because you, you didn't account. Your, your price is cheap because you didn't account for some of the benefits that you assume for free, but you didn't actually return the asset back to the system. So whether it's air, land, you know, water, mineral assets, all these things are, I think, coming into calculation, which I think is, at, at one level, you can say, oh, goodness, this is... Uh, this is going to be bad news, but I think it's going to be good news in the long run because we are going to become more simple and much more elegant. I've always thought things kind of move in extremes. I mean, in our industry, you have this this ESG thing, which is kind of mandated, at least in my opinion, extremes of what you're talking about. And then there's the other side, which is, you know, like you got said, also the bottom line, but somewhere in the middle. And, you know, I see this manifest with the, like the people I've worked with. 
financial remuneration and you know reward for work done is part of it but there's also this balance you know there's this flexibility of schedule there's other things that kind of people are looking for as they build out their life and it's same thing with the clients Darcy talks about what we're doing is building experiences we want to have experiences with people versus just this cold transactional thing and so I feel like we've done really well with that in terms of having personal relationships so let me shift gears because here's one that I think I'd really like to ask you to speak to, which is the family business. <laughs> and I've had some experiences with this with clients and family in money, I will tell you, just full disclosure, it can be really great or it can just be horrible. I mean, I've known people who've sued, siblings have sued each other over perceived slights on, you know, how much inheritances they've had. I mean, I've had people come in who literally were angry because their deceased mother left 10 grand to somebody who was taking care of them who wasn't a family member. I mean, the stories of that could go on and on. And so then you get into business. And I really just love if you can share, because to me, that's, there's a bunch of potholes on this life cycle where things can blow up. But that's one that I think probably has the most complications of any of them in my mind. And so if you don't mind just elaborating on some experience, some thoughts, I think this would be really interesting. Sure, sure. I think this is, uh, so the good news is I I didn't realize I was going to get into this uh, space, but in the last two decades, I think 90% of our clients that I deal with are family-owned businesses. And you're right. I think there's there's a lot of, I mean, at, at some point you're looking at, you know, we're going to, you're building this beautiful thing and then suddenly two siblings are fighting over, you know, your wife is using the chauffeur more than my wife. So, so it's, it's I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> ridiculous, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. There's a slide I put together for this uh, concept. If you can shift it to the next one, and there's a thing called the three circle model, and these life cycles are in play and it gets complex a bit. Because you have the business side of the, the business is one thing, and you got the family, which also has a life cycle. And the third piece that will pop up, Emerson, is this thing called ownership. So these three things create some very interesting dynamics. Okay. By the way, the credit for this goes to, uh, there's a group of uh, people, John Davies and company, that put together these three things. And on purpose, I've colored these circles, you know, family being green, the business being red, and ownership being blue. And if you look at right in the center of this Mickey Mouse diagram, so to say, is, uh, is, is zone one, where you have family members who own the business and are also managing the business. So that's a very typical state of being. But then you also have family members that are also employees, but are not, not owners, and that's zone two. So that's a little legend on the right. And zone three, are you have uh, non-family mem- people in the business, but they also are owners. So you've got three different constellations that are in the business. And then four and five really are there's family owners, but they're not in the business and other owners that are not in the business because many times you need other financing and you have partners that come into play. And what essentially what this is showing is that you can see the level of interest. There's multiple interests that are being activated and each of them have their own way of life. So if it was just a family, imagine if you didn't, if all the ownership was in the family, it would reduce the complexity. But that very often is never the case because you always need some other partner to to come along and finance the business. And then I think zone six and seven are very interesting. So six is basically people who are working in the business, but they are not owners and they are employees and managers. They're not owners and they're not family. And then there's- Do we call them the odd man out? 
but they basically control your destiny in a sense because they are the ones you rely yeah. on to get things done. So if you yeah, don't integrate okay. them, and this is back to the thing we started with, you can't go and whip them around. This, these are not horses. <laughs> in fact, Dr. Adesis was uh, interested, he was uh, going through this uh, definition of what is management. In many languages, the word management doesn't exist. And in Spanish, the closest word that comes to, to management is called manejar. Manejar is used in the context of handling horses or driving cars. So you can see the old uh, linkages to the words, but management has evolved and it has to be more. You, you can't, you can't you know, treat a human like a horse or a car and drive them. And that's really, many of our management elements is top-down, you know, lead them. It's always this top-down stuff, but the world is too complex and you, you have to do this you have to engage them in a in a different way because they have a life, they have a heart, they have a family, and how do you integrate that uh, that piece of the puzzle? And I'm sure if you, you look at your own uh, context, uh, Emerson, the uh, business you've built, some of the people may not be partners or owners, but they almost act like family. So even though they are outside the family, they become uh, very close to you in 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 in, 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 in no uncertain terms. And then there's family members who are not in the business, but they have tremendous influence. And I remember the situation once, there was this Australian family that had come to, they were having some trouble, and three brothers and a father, and uh, you know, we'd get together and uh, make some agreements, and then it was, everybody shook hands, and then they would go away, and the next morning, it was as if yesterday's conversation never happened. So there was, I mean, there was agreement the night before, but the next morning, everything was, was falling apart, because there was the pillow talk that happened with the spouses. And the spouses have such influence. Even they're not in the business, they actually can dictate many things. So there's people who are not in, directly involved in the business, but they are driving the show. You were mentioning about the non-family or the or the family, the, the uninvolved second party, the spouse or the invariably, whether it's involving an inheritance situation or business, it's usually the family you actually identified the point. It's that outsider that's connected through marriage or some other thing that is invariably the one stirring the pot. I've observed that constant, and then they get the one spouse riled up, and then you get the problem starting, and it's it's unfortunate. Was there another one you wanted me to go to on, on this topic? No, no, no. This is, at one level, it's unfortunate, but on the other side, if we know the phenomenon, I think that's the, the advantage of the Adesis game, is if you know this phenomenon exists, you can inoculate against it. I think that's the... Uh, what we do is, which is, we have the the medicine or the inoculation to be able to pre- to not prevent this because we know it's going to happen. And if you can predict it and and use that energy, because conflict, for example, if there's noise in the system, it's energy. And if you can harness that energy somehow and make it constructive, that's what makes this uh, so much more um, invigorating and fun. So yes, at, at one level, we can say, why is this person, you know, poking their nose in in this business, but but that's the reality. So if we recognize the reality and use it to our advantage, because they have some needs too, they're doing it for a reason. And one of the things that happens is that each of these three circles operate with different vibrations. And maybe we can, we, we, before we go to the next uh, piece of the puzzle, Emerson, I think the key is not to isolate this and say, in the past, you know, there was this uh, saying about, you know, business is business and personal is personal, don't let the two mix. And we're saying, no, everything is personal and everything is business in, in this context. So so don't try to compartmentalize it because it's a false uh, starting assumption. But let's leverage that and use it to our advantage. Mm. And one other piece of the puzzle which might shed some light is if we can go to the next graphic. 
So if you remember, green was the family circle, blue was the ownership circle, and red was the business circle. And each of them have different dimensions that impact each circle. So for example, if you look at the, the time horizons, which is this horizontal line, the time horizon for a business, if you look at their planning and how they do planning, it's, you know, typically it's, it's about a three to five year. I mean, five years is becoming even more rare now. But three years is pretty typical. That's their time horizon. But if you look at the family, the family time horizon, if, if families do plan, most families last for at least three generations. And three generations is 100 years. So if you imagine just the difference in how the business thinks and how the family thinks, you've got a, you know, you, there's, a, there's a time horizon mismatch, so to say. Because 100 years, you can do a lot of good or you can do a lot of damage. And three years is, is typically the, the cycle for a business. And in terms of the consciousness and, and values, the businesses, you know, is, is really based on more on meritocracy. Let's, you know, make things happen. Let's add value to the marketplace. But the family system, which is the green system, is more egalitarian, equal rights, you know. So just the way in which decisions get made are different, and that creates a lot of tension. And the ownership thing is more about rules-based. You know, this is, this is the rule, this is the law, therefore we're going to follow that. So that's the blue system, for instance. And in the family side, because even the, as, as you rightly said, you know, there's, there's a will which has uh, everything documented, but then the green system will try and um, you know, upend that, which, uh, because they say that's uh, you know, their version of fairness has got their own definition. And then in terms of the expansion and contraction of financial assets, so the business can expand and contract very rapidly, but the family system is more conservative and it shrinks and expands at a, at a different pace. So all of these dimensions tend to, uh, to create conflict. Uh, and these are the subterranean pieces. And even though people are behaving a certain way, I think they're triggered by some of these, uh, these elements, the values, for instance, where they are, the time horizons. And then the fear or the uh, anxiety that might come in terms of risk-taking or risk aversion. But at the end of the day, I think if you look at what is family wealth, at least I've, I've come to learn the following. Family wealth, yes, there has to be financial elements to it. But there's also there's financial capital, there's also intellectual capital. As you look at the family and so in its evolution, it's evolving and they, they, they grow intellectually. There's also human capital. They've got muscle, and, and you can trust the family because there's tremendous trust because they have to share a certain thing. Versus if you hire somebody from the outside, building up that trust might require a little bit more doing, and you may have to put more rules in place. But in a family thing, you, you, can, get, you can get by because there's a trust inside the family, more often than not. And then there's also spiritual capital. So I think those pieces, so many times when people talk of family wealth, they they focus on the financial side, but there's these three other dimensions which are potentially bigger, if not uh, equal to, than, uh, than just the financial piece of the puzzle. But I just wanted to pause there and see if you had any reactions to this little chart, uh, Emerson. Well, yeah, it just confirms what I thought. <laughs> Family business has got too many moving parts. And I've joked on this podcast before that I've learned the lesson the hard way about not going into business with your friends. I've never gone into business with family, and uh, maybe I learned my lesson dipping my foot in the water a little. But no, you brought up a point, and I'm going to go back to this, and that is the spiritual element, because I think that really gets overlooked, and I think that is an element, at least, again, I'm just speculating here as somebody who's got a little bit of experience with work and stuff, but 
that could get very easily lost in a big organization. And I know one of the things that really works well in our little company is that we all are aligned in a way that we we see beyond the work. There is a bigger purpose to what we do. I think we all in our office see that. And so that's a very motivating thing that, that unites you on a different level. And so I guess that was going to lead me to kind of the, the last point I wanted to get to, because I know you've got a plane to catch, and and that is heartfulness. Because to me, if I, you know, I part, got an opportunity about a year ago to participate in the in the heartfulness um, journey, and I'm just kind of curious as to maybe you could elaborate on that as a way to kind of tie all this together into something meaningful, if that makes sense. So I think I think there are three. Uh points to mention. One is, if you think of what is the purpose of starting a business, I mean, yes, it's a way to, uh, initially it's to create value because there's a dream you have and you want to make a change, and then it becomes an ATM machine that you that is providing for a certain set of people and not only their family, but also the employees that work there. But the real reason to start a business is to help people evolve. And more and more, I think most uh, most of the education now is shifting towards that is to elevate the human consciousness because people spend most of their waking hours inside these different environments. And if they just come back like a squeezed lemon or you know, being put through the grinder, that doesn't do the world any good. So so there's a shift in consciousness and you can you can see things like you know, conscious capitalism and other kinds of movements that are coming out there. But Adesus, I think, has been at the heart of this uh, thing right from the get-go, which is why I think I got attracted to it in the first place, which is how do we create environments where the most desirable naturally occurs? So that's that's part of the uh, Adesus mm. approach to uh, navigating. Because mm. not, it's not about just making more money or beca- making a better business, but creating the conditions where you can actually free the prisoners and allow people to evolve as human beings. I think that's vital. And then along the way, Emerson, I so I was doing this Adesis stuff, and my brother discovered this thing called heartfulness. It's a meditation-based uh, practice, and we were meditating, and life was good. So, and I told him, "Look, uh, I I don't need to switch to this." He was saying, "This is hot stuff. You should check it out." And for two years, I didn't buy. I didn't buy what he was saying. Till a ship came to San Diego, and he gave me this four-page article to read. <clears throat> and in the article, I, I my jaw just dropped. Because uh, what I was seeing was I, I was seeing Adesis for the for the human spirit, but Adesis uh, does uh, helps the organizations free the human potential in a, in a collective way. And heartfulness was almost a mirror image of the things we do to help organizations. And I could see a one for one correlation between the Adesis approach and how we would trigger this for our own souls. And the next day I was in, and that was, I think, 2002. So it's been, again, 20 years, and it's been just an adventure. And it's one mm. of those things where you help people. It's about, again, it's about the human spirit and the, and the human evolution, which allows people to evolve in a more uh, natural way. There's no strict dogma. It's uh, because everything we need is already given to us, and we just need to uncover what it is. And the best part was it was a systematic approach and doesn't require the high priest, you know, where you outsource your spiritual development to somebody else, which is what most religions do. Here you can take charge of that and do it in a family setting rather than going, you know, in some places, in, if you go to India, the people, you know, they go off and run away from the family and sit under a tree or 
or uh, some other people do other things. But how do you integrate these, your spiritual development and make it an integral part of daily life? And uh, whether it's work, whether it's family life, whether it's anything you do. So, so it was very invigorating for me to discover this. And uh, like mm. I said, it's been a 20-year journey, and I am still intrigued. I'm still learning this, and I'm still a novice at this, but it's it's it seems to be working. So, uh, so for, for, for folks that might want to look at this, it's a very unknown thing it's 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 always uh, there's no marketing done around it because it, you have to almost discover this by yourself uh, similar to adesis most people don't really know adesis but but the people that find it you know get tremendous value and benefit so we don't want to use <clears throat> marketing as a way to you know drive the flock in but when people discover it i think they get uh, somewhat surprised and then uh, each one approaches it from their own perspective. Again, I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, that's what came from the heart, Emerson. No, you did. And I know from my experience doing that, it was, it's what, about a 10-week, 9, 10-week, uh, kind of once-a-week thing with the work in between. But I think the part I took out of it, I mean, aside from, I just enjoyed collaborating with people all over the globe. I really enjoyed, you know, Mandeep. I that guy's great. I just, you know, I that, that's a guy I could, I just would really like to spend more time getting to know. But you know, we had these groups and you just would talk and analyze and you learn and there's just something to be said. I mean, I know this sounds pretty basic, but just being able to have an honest communication with people and express your views without feeling like either A, you're not being politically correct, B, you're going to get attacked, C, you're going to, I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, it's almost like the freshness of just having a conversation where everybody can talk and just brainstorm whatever. I um. You know, and I enjoyed the, um, the the meditations that started that. It really was good, and I guess that's maybe what I found in our office is that we do bring prayer into it. We do bring, you know, our office has got pictures of Christ on it because we can, uh, <laughs> you know. And and um, but it's just to set a tone. It's just it's an environment we want to create that brings peace when people walk in. Whether they're uh, that's the other thing I found is people, whether they're Christian or Jewish or whatever, they don't really. It just there's an energy that's created that you want to bring to people. And I, and I really appreciate what you said about help allowing people to evolve as human beings. That's See, that's a higher level of an objective of any business and company. And, and like I said, some of the books I'm reading, I mean, clearly that was, you know, if you think about, you know, when people look at their, oh, how do we improve our business? It's like cutting expenses. I don't, I don't think spirituality ever even gets on the balance sheet. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a, that, that, you know, you bring that up in a boardroom and people are going to look at you like you're high. And, you know, anyway, I could go on and on. But, um, but I think the, uh, but I think there's the, but there are three energy forces. So there's the head, the hands and the heart. And the heart can move very rapidly. So from an efficiency standpoint, and again, a bit, and people, I think, are waking up to this idea. And if you can engage the heart in the right sequence, you need, you need all three. You need the head, you need the hands. But if you, but we've actually ignored the heart from the business side more often than not. But when you do engage it, the results are just uh, are just mind-boggling, and at least yeah. that's our experience. And, and many many people once they once they taste that, they won't let go of it. So so I feel very hopeful because I think there's a there's a larger and larger movement towards this uh, direction. No, I agree. So listen, Sunil, I appreciate. It. I could talk to you forever. You're you're just one of the good guys in the world, and I'm glad that our paths crossed. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, particularly business owners that might be listening or watching, where's the best way to to reach out to you? Oh gosh, um, well, it's Sunil at Adidas dot com. That's that's the fastest way. But there's a website. I mean, 
Adizes is A D I Z E S, and that's uh, so. Our office, I, even though I'm sitting in Colorado, my real office is sitting in uh, is is in Mexico, it's in Monterrey, Mexico, and we have a very far, again a phenomenal team. Just like you've uh, built uh, Emerson, we've got a, a team, but it's, uh, it's it's it does you know, phenomenal work. And I think uh, we had a dinner last week where some of our clients came to attend this dinner. And they came because they wanted to show their support because we were trying to help another university understand this Adiza stuff. And we gave them the theory and they said, look, don't listen to us. Listen to the people who are practicing, who adopted this methodology. And it was so gratifying to see. I gave out invitations, but and everybody was eager to come because not because they had to come. And these are all CEOs of businesses. And they came because they they felt part of this uh, this particular thing. So Adesis is not something, yes, it's a set of tools, it's a set of concepts. But what happens over time is you can, you're inspired by it, but then you make this system your own and and these all these businesses that had had uh, tropicalized it and made it their own and they felt it was theirs but then they wanted and and they they were freely sharing with others how how they benefited from it and and it was amazing because in that room there were people that basically had about uh, collectively say 10,000 employees that were that were present and then if you imagine each family is Got you know an average of four, so there were so there were about forty thousand people impacted by this thing, and that was very gratifying to see because it was not about yeah they're making good money, but they also are better humans and they take care of the community. They're they're well integrated and they are uh, so it's it's not uh, either or it's an and and uh, and many times if you can tap into the human potential, uh, we can uh, create exponential results. So and that I think is the missing link which we're trying to bridge. I appreciate that. And, and, is, and to the limited exposure I've had, it's been enough to change the way I think about um, certainly people we bring into the firm, but also just our purpose. And I think if there's anything to be said, just the fact that that mind shift has occurred in my mm-hmm. firm, I think that's a win because it's certainly made us better people, but also just a better company for people. And um, I'm enjoying it. You know, I think bottom line is, I love what I do, and the people that I work with love what they do, and it's just a, it's a good place to be. Absolutely, so. absolutely. No, but but thank you, thank you for this invitation, and I'm glad we could uh, we could pull this off. And, um, and and again, as I said in the beginning, <laughs> we're like missionaries, so anybody we can help along the way, we'd be happy to uh, to 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 serve this uh, dish up because it's a pretty good dish. No, a hundred percent. I can attest to that. So, Sunil, thanks for joining me today on Upthinking Finance. I appreciate it. All right. All the best, Emerson. Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted 
and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.